here we are. So good to see you and be back with you. I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 14, verse 26. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There are some on the seats in front of you. Now, every seat has a Bible in front of you, so that's great. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to uh, give that to you as a gift. So feel free to take those home with you if you don't have one. Uh, We would love for you to have that. Uh, Again, it's good to be back with you this morning. I missed you last week, but it was so great to have Pastor Scott here, and I just heard nothing but great things about last week, and I'm so glad he and Christy were able to be here for the morning. You know, um, sometimes former pastors can make it really hard for new pastors to come in and and lead and kind of lead the church forward, but Scott has been nothing but helpful and encouraging, and just such a blessing to Amber and I. And so I just have nothing but good things to say about Scott. So I'm really glad he was here. We love him and Christy. And I'm just bummed that I wasn't able to be here for that day and really see him teach and share that moment with him. But I heard it was a great, great day. Um, Thank you for praying for us while we were gone. Most of the board and staff last week were in Denver, Colorado, and we had just a fantastic time. If you uh, know someone who was on that trip, I encourage you to ask them something that they learned while they were there. We were at a conference that was put on by a group of churches out in Denver that are really doing some, some exciting stuff, uh, planting churches and revitalizing dying churches. And it was great just to learn from them and kind of hear their story where they were a church that was about to close its doors down to 20 or 30 people, didn't know what the future would hold, but they really believed that God wasn't done with their church. And so they continued to pray and press in, and really a turning point came when they decided, we just need to love our neighbors. And so no bells and whistles, nothing fancy. We're just going to love our community. We're going to get outside of our walls and love the people around us. And they used this phrase that we heard probably about a thousand times, uh, that they wanted to be non-ignorable and help Jesus become non-ignorable in Denver. And so I think it's a helpful phrase, right? Because not everyone's going to respond to the gospel positively, but if we can make it non-ignorable, that you can't just see our church and shrug your shoulders, but there's some kind of reaction because of how we love people and how we're out in our community, then that is a win. And so it was great to catch that vision, and now for our team to come back here and just press into life and ministry in Benicia in Vallejo. And one thing that just really stood out was we got a great team here at FBC. If I could just brag on our our board and staff, they are phenomenal men and women who love the Lord, who are gifted, who love you. They love you and this church. And we just, we're so glad to be back here home this Sunday. And we're excited for what God's doing in Benicia. So again, thank you for your prayers. With that, let me pray for us one more time as we get ready to jump into the Word. Sound good? Father, we we do say thank you uh, once again for your goodness and your kindness towards us. Thank you for the chance to gather here as your church to worship you. And, And now, Lord, as we turn to your Word, we pray that you would help us understand what we read, help us to learn and to grow together Uh, to be more like you, that our hearts and our minds would be shaped more and more uh, to be 
at the people that you want us to be. Lord, we love you and we need your help now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, Mark 14 is where we're going to be, starting in verse 26. Uh, before we get there, have you ever seen an unflattering picture of yourself? A picture that makes you go, ooh. And then you tell the person, if it's on their phone, maybe, can you please delete that picture? You know what I'm talking about? You see one, that maybe it's like from below, and you kind of got the chin thing going on in the photo, or you see a picture and you realize that the clothes you're wearing don't fit as well as you thought they did, and it makes you go, ooh. Or maybe it's after you just woke up in the morning, and the hair is all frizzy, and you're just, it's not the best, most flattering look for you. Yeah, I think, I think we all can relate. It makes you go, do I, is that really what I look like? You know? And sometimes we see unflattering pictures of ourselves, not meaning an actual photograph, but you look back on a certain circumstance, on some events, and you see your, your heart on display or your character, and it's kind of unflattering. You say, ooh, I, I can't believe I said that or talked that way to my spouse or treated my friends that way. I reacted that way to my kids. You see your, your anger come out, or maybe it's in the moment, maybe it's a little bit later, but you see your impatience or your pride or your sin, and it makes you go, ooh. Can we delete that picture? <laughs> is, that, is that really what I look like? It's unflattering. Now, we're going to see something similar in the text this morning an unflattering picture of the disciples, and by extension, us. And it's going to force us to examine our own hearts. And so let's take a look. Verse 26 says this, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. See, last time we were together in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples sharing the Last Supper when he warns them of betrayal and his coming death, reminding them of the sacrifice he was about to give, his very life for them on the cross. Verse 26 picks up right there. After that, they sing a hymn together. We love a good hymn, don't we? They sing together, and then they go out to the Mount of Olives, which was this hillside garden-type area to the east of the city of Jerusalem, right outside the walls. If you remember, earlier Jesus told his disciples that one of them would betray him. But now, in verse 27, he says, they all will fall away from him. And he quotes the Old Testament there, Zechariah says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so he's still speaking of his coming death. He, the shepherd, will be struck down, will be killed on a cross, and his disciples, his sheep, will be scattered. But there's a word of hope in verse 28 about his resurrection, his going before them to Galilee. Now, all of that would be remarkable enough. 
that Jesus is telling them of what's ahead, his coming death, and the fact that they will be scattered and fall away and disown him in a sense. I mean, God's control and his sovereignty is all over this passage. But what really stands out is the reaction of the disciples. And you see that in verse 29. It goes on, Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. So how do the disciples respond? Say, no, Jesus, we would never fall away from you. Verse 31 tells us they all were saying that. We'll never abandon you, Jesus. And Peter specifically in verse 29, even if all the others fall away, I will not. To which all the others say, Peter, we're standing right here. Come on, even if all those clowns fall away, I will not. They're like, really, Peter? The nerve of him to say such a thing. But Jesus insists. No, he says in verse 30, no, you will deny me, Peter. You will all fall away. And we know, most of us, we're familiar with the story, what follows. Peter does disown Jesus, doesn't he? He denies him three times. The disciples do all scatter when Jesus does, goes to the cross, just as Jesus said that they would. And so we see here with these disciples and Peter the most, this unflattering picture. They're blind. They're self-assured, thinking that they will not stumble. We won't disown you, Jesus. I won't deny you, Jesus. And yet, they do. And so I think this is an opportunity for us to stop, to reflect, and to do two things. This is an invitation for us first to trust ourselves less. We need to trust ourselves less. When teaching on this passage, Pastor Tim Keller put it this way, speaking of Peter and Peter's confidence in himself, he said these words. He says, Peter's faith was in his love for Jesus, not Jesus' love for him. We'll say that again. Peter's faith was in his love for Jesus, not Jesus' love for him. Now, it's that because what's Peter saying? Say, no, Jesus, I'll stay true to you. I will remain faithful. I'm strong enough for the task. I'll hold on to you. And so it makes us wonder, where do we put our hope today? Do we put our hope in ourselves and trust ourselves? When we see others fall and stumble in their faith, do we say, well, that would never happen to me because I'm a stronger Christian than that or I'm better than them or wiser or more seasoned in the faith? Or do we say, no, Jesus is my only hope. And when I put my head on my pillow at night, I can rest 
not because I've taken hold of Jesus, but because he's taken hold of me. My faith is in him, not my own strength. See, I, I can't even trust myself to load the dishwasher the right way. So how in the world am I supposed to trust myself and be responsible for my soul to hang on to Jesus in life and death? We've got to trust ourselves less and look to Jesus. See, these words from Jesus could have led to humble repentance from the disciples. I saying, Lord, help us. Jesus, keep us from falling away from you. We need you and your strength. But instead they say, no, that wouldn't happen to us. That wouldn't happen to me. They're brash and overconfident in themselves. See, if you don't think that you'll stumble, then you won't prepare yourself beforehand to avoid such stumbling. So when we see this unflattering picture of the blind disciples, we can learn to trust ourselves less. But we can go a step further than this. I think this is also an invitation for us to grow in some self-awareness. See, it's helpful in one thing to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. That's a healthy step that we all need to acknowledge. But then we can go a little further and really understand the way that we sin. Do we know ourselves and our hearts enough to understand our weaknesses and our temptations, the different areas where we are prone to fail and fall and stumble. See, a Benedictine monk once said, most people assume that they understand who they are when they actually don't. It's true, we're often so blind to our own sins and impulses and internal motivations And so this is an opportunity for us to ask the question, how am I most prone to fall away from the Lord? See, for you, it might not be that you are outwardly, visibly angry and just a bull in a china shop and steamrolling people, but maybe you more quietly deal with pride or comparison. Maybe for you, you deal with lust or greed, but maybe you don't deal with those things, but you're prone to worry and you're crippled by the opinions of other people and how they view you and the fear of man. I could go on. There's a long list of sins and ways that we stumble and fall, but it's worth asking the question, how do I tend to fall away? Where do I tend to trust myself more than the Lord? Where do I try to avoid God and be my own Savior? This is a chance for us to grow in self-awareness. A homework assignment for you, if you're brave. Ask your spouse or a good friend of yours the question, what do you see in me or see in my heart that I need to repent of? What do you notice in me, an attitude of mine, a behavior of mine that is out of line with who God is? Can you help me see? Because sometimes we can't see it on our own. We're blinded ourselves, but someone else, they see. (laughs) They notice. They'd be willing to tell you if you asked. So I encourage you to ask that question. So rather than being blind like these disciples, we can be humble. 
and self-aware as we follow Jesus. It gets better, though, uh, because the disciples aren't just blind. Verse 32 continues. After this, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And so he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. So the passage continues, and now Jesus and the disciples are still outside of the city at night. Now they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was at the base of the Mount of Olives, kind of this outdoor place with a lot of olive trees. And he tells his disciples there to stay and pray with him while he prays himself. And he takes Peter, James, and John, kind of that inner circle Peter, James, and John, we've seen their names pop up together before. He brings them along a little bit further, and he's, he's overwhelmed with sorrow, you see. Verse 34, he tells them to keep watch, to stay alert, while he himself goes on a little bit further to pray. We're going to come back to his prayer in just a minute. We'll circle back. But I want you to see again what happens after Jesus prays with the disciples. What do they do in verse 37? It says, then he returned to his disciples, so after Jesus prayed, and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. And then verse 40, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say to him. Verse 41, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And right after Jesus speaks these words, Judas and the group arrives to arrest him. And we'll look at that next week. But for now, again, let's just keep the spotlight for a moment on these disciples. What do they do? They fall asleep. And not just once. Not just like they're dozing off and Jesus is like, hey, this is really important. Could you stay awake with me and pray? And they're like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. You're right, Jesus. We're with you. Here we go. We're in this. No, three times they fall asleep in an hour of need. And even Peter, this bold, fearless disciple, I'll never disown you. I'm with you, Jesus, to the very end, even if I have to die. And now, sleepy. And Jesus responds, verse 37, couldn't you, just one hour, guys? <laughs> couldn't you watch just one hour? Couldn't you be here with me alert in prayer? He says, the spirit is willing. Maybe you have this desire, but your body, your flesh is weak. See, have you ever fallen asleep when you were supposed to be awake? Bet we have some stories we could tell. Maybe you slept in through your alarm one day and missed an important interview or you fell asleep at work when you didn't want to or in class, or maybe you fell asleep during church. 
sometimes. I remember in college a few times dozing off in class, and it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to. I kind of wanted to stay awake, but I just couldn't, and my body was fighting it, but I just dozed off. And this scene is so fascinating. I want you to think big picture here. If you can remember with me back to Mark chapter 4. Okay, we're going to zoom back a little bit. And this shows us how sometimes we don't view things the way God views things. We don't always handle situations the way God wants us to. Because think back to Mark chapter 4. Jesus and the disciples were there. They were in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee. And a storm erupts, waves and wind. And the disciples are terrified. And what's Jesus doing in that moment? He's sleeping. And they wake him up. They say, Jesus, don't you care that we're drowning? And he says, guys, calm down. I got this. He calms the storm. Everything's peaceful. He says, it's okay. Why are you so afraid? And the text doesn't tell us, but hopefully he goes on to continue his nap there uninterrupted. And now we're here in Mark chapter 14 when another storm has come. This time a true storm. Jesus going to the cross. Jesus ready to bear the sins of the world. And this time, the disciples are sleeping. Isn't it interesting that sometimes we are awake and alert and stressed out when Jesus says, just rest. It's fine. What are you so afraid about? But then we're sleeping when Jesus says, no, be awake. Be alert. Sometimes we get it so wrong. We're awake when Jesus says, no, sleep. And we're sleeping when Jesus says, hey, be awake. We get it backwards sometimes. Again, I wonder how many of us, metaphorically speaking, have fallen asleep on the job. God calls us to pray, to share our faith, to serve to look for opportunities to love people sacrificially, to look for opportunities to talk about Jesus, but instead we fall asleep and we miss opportunities. We get distracted. We'd rather have fun or watch Netflix or do something else that we think is more important, so we fall asleep. When Jesus is saying, it's game time. Be alert. Watch and pray. I remember back in college, I was, many of you know, on the Ultimate Frisbee team. We would travel to these tournaments and have weekend tournaments, and often the second day of the tournament would be hard because we'd be tired from the day before, and sometimes that Sunday morning we would have early games at 7.30 or 8 a.m. I remember sometimes we'd get to the game, and we'd look around and realize like half our team wasn't there. We like barely had enough people to put on the field to play the game. Like no subs, we were just going all out. And we were calling guys from our team saying, where are you? And they, they were sleeping. They slept in because they were tired from the day before or hungover or both. I mean, it was just some of those guys, you know, who knows what they were doing that night. And so the morning came and it was game time. We're like, where are these guys? We need you. It's game time. We're supposed to be on the field. Here we go. And you're missing an action. So in the same way, Jesus is saying, guys, it's game time. Watch, pray, be alert and ready. And they're sleeping. 
You know, it's all pretty embarrassing for the disciples. They're blind to their own weakness. We'll never fall away from you, Jesus. And they do. They're weak. They're falling asleep when they're supposed to be awake. I mean, it's really an unflattering picture. But I think, again, it's a chance for us to grow in humility and remember that we as well are blind and sleepy people. We are. We see a picture of ourselves in these disciples. And I think God wants us to see a few things. He wants us to see the need to grow in humility and dependence. Like we talked about earlier, not to be puffed up, but instead to be aware of our own weakness, our own propensity to sin, so we can depend on God, look to Him, We are weak, Lord. You are strong. Help us. We're not a self-reliant people. We need you. This is also a chance for us to grow in grace with one another. Because if you take a look around the room, again, you're going to see a lot of blind, sleepy people. Not literally, hopefully, but figuratively. We're, We're all there with that tendency. And so... How will you respond when your friend or your spouse or your family member stumbles, falls asleep on the job, lets you down, hurts you? We'll have the choice there. Will you drop the hammer on them, be harsh with them, be impatient with them? Or will you realize that you're a sleepy person too and extend grace and lovingly come alongside them, walk with them, encourage them, help them to grow, help them to be obedient in walking with Jesus. Now, in contrast to the disciples, they're flawed, they're failing, they're weak. We see Jesus in the text. Verse 32. Going back, it says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And so he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And so in contrast to the failing, flawed disciples, we see the faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 33, he's deeply distressed. He's troubled. He's sorrowful, even to the point of death. I mean, do you see how emphatic this language is? Really wanting us to see how overwhelmed Jesus is with the task that lies before him. I mean, verse 35 even continues, rather than standing with his hands open in prayer, he falls to the ground, exhausted. I mean, this is different from the Jesus that we've seen so far, isn't it? We've been so used to seeing the strong, powerful Jesus, the cool, calm, and collected Jesus. And here, we see this moment of Jesus overwhelmed, realizing the weight that he carries the sins of the world upon 
his shoulders. It shows us a bit of Jesus' humanity, doesn't it? That he knows what it's like to be distressed, troubled, grieving with sorrow, overwhelmed at what's asked of him. He can relate with our experience. We should think about, though, what, what could explain this type of reaction from Jesus? I mean, this is, again, a pretty shocking picture of our Lord, our King, our conquering Savior, just on the ground, exhausted in prayer, overwhelmed with distress. I mean, throughout history, we've seen people face death. We've seen heroic martyrs of the Christian faith that essentially say as they go to their death, do your worst because of their bold confidence in the Lord. And yet here we see Jesus facing death and he's nearly crippled by his distress and sorrow. What could explain that? See, he must be facing something that those other martyrs throughout history did not face. Verse 35, he's going a little further. He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. He asked God the Father to take this cup from him. The cup in the Old Testament was a a symbol of God's wrath against human sin and injustice and evil. And so Jesus knows here that he's not just facing uh, a torturous physical death where he's dying on the cross just in a, a purely physical sense, but he's actually facing the wrath of God against sin. Jonathan Edwards, great preacher, theologian, put it this way. He said he's standing before this furnace of God's judgment and begins to feel its heat there in the garden. And it's overwhelming. See, on the cross, again, Jesus just wasn't an executed criminal, but he was bearing the sins of the world. He's facing the judgment of God upon sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He became a curse for us so that we might be rescued, that we might escape such wrath and judgment and condemnation, right? He would be forsaken and condemned so that we could go free, so that we could be forgiven and adopted into the family of God. And so on the cross, because of His work, he would save his people from their sins. But we see that this is no easy task. This is no light-hearted stroll in the park. He's overwhelmed with sorrow and grief to bear this cross, the sin of the world to be cut off from fellowship with God the Father. And it's in this moment of grief and overwhelming sorrow that he prays, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. If there's any other way to rescue the world, let's go that way. If there's any other way. But not what I will, but what you will. So here he 
teaches us so much about prayer, doesn't he? He first shows us intimacy with the Father, calls him Abba. It's really a, a sweet term. Often it would be a Jewish child's first word, Abba, similar to, to Papa. It's an intimate term. You see, Jews saw God as their father, but they would never refer to him as Abba. And yet here, Jesus shows us that intimacy that he has with the Father that we now get to enjoy as well. And he also shows us a willingness to bring his requests to God. He says, take this cup from me. If it's possible, let's do this thing another way. If I can avoid the cross and this cup of wrath, let's go that direction if possible presents his request to God, as we should as well, and yet ultimately entrusts himself to the will of the Father and obediently steps forward, yet not what I will, but what you will. He embraces this suffering ahead, and in love and in obedience, he goes to the cross. And oh, if we could be a people that pray prayers like this. Father, here's my desire. Here's what I would like to see happen. Here's my request. But ultimately, I trust you. I trust you. Your will be done, even if none of this over here happens that I'd like. I trust you. And it's interesting that God God hears this prayer. We know this. But the answer to his prayer was not avoiding death. He still drank the cup. He still went to the cross, but he was resurrected after death. And I wonder how many of our prayers might be answered in the same way. We might not be spared from the trial. We might not avoid the death or the loss that is in front of us, and yet God will bring new life and resurrection on the other side. And so, taking this all together, the flawed failing the disciples, the faithful Savior. We have to ask, what do we do when we notice the same unflattering tendencies in ourselves? The answer is we look to Jesus. We run to Jesus. Because amidst the flawed, failing disciples, we have our faithful Savior. And so we look to this text and we see this incredible example of love and obedience and faithfulness that Jesus puts in front of us to trust God and we likewise can stay the course, but we do not just celebrate this morning a good example for us to follow. We don't just celebrate a model of godly living and try to shape our lives after Jesus Christ. Of course, we do that, but we don't just do that because Jesus is not just an example. He's also our Savior. He's our Savior. And so we look to Him as the Savior of the world. We're here in this hour in the garden at the doorstep of His arrest and His path to the cross where He'll take the cup of God's wrath, judgment against sin, carrying that weight for the whole world so that we would not have to. That's the heart of the gospel, that God reconciles us to himself. 
He adopts us. He forgives us. He brings us into His family. He washes us clean. He renews us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And so we worship this morning our Savior and the fact that through Him we're brought back into relationship with the God who loves us, who loves you so much. And this morning we get to celebrate that reality by coming to the table. We're going to celebrate communion together where we come and we take the bread and the cup which reminds us of Jesus' broken body and His shed blood on the cross. We celebrate and remember Him today. We practice an open table here, which means even if you're visiting, if you're not a member of this church, but you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate with us, to celebrate with us. We're going to have two tables, uh, one on each side up here. We have gluten-free option if you need that as well. Again, this is a chance for us as the people of God to come and remember Jesus our King and our Savior. And if you're here this morning, you're not sure if you really responded to Jesus, you don't consider yourself a Christian, that's okay. Just encourage you to remain seated uh, while the music plays. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we look to this text this morning and we are overwhelmed with gratitude at the cost, the price you paid to rescue us. And so, Jesus, we say thank you for dying for us. Thank you for your unwavering commitment and faithfulness to save us from sin and death. And so we remember you this morning as we take the bread and the cup, reminding us of your body and blood. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.